Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the More Than Books podcast. As, uh, as usual, I'm your host, Joel, joined with, by Colin. Hello. What are we talking about today? <laughs> we're talking about a big topic. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about a more library-related topic, yes. I suppose, uh, like directly library-related. And it's not just library-related, it's, you know, academia in general, academic publishing, all that fun stuff. And that topic is the open access movement. So that's uh, that's a, that's kind of a broad topic. There's a lot of jargon uh, going on. So we'll try to, you know, explain what open access is uh, and explain why it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, we also might uh, delve into some of the pros and cons of making a uh, or publishing something open access. So um, I guess to get started, we have to kind of give a little. Well, before we can really dive into what open access is, I know we have to kind of give kind of a brief explanation of the uh, journal publishing industry and kind of how it works, because the open access movement really came as kind of a way to not fight back against some of the more predatory uh, journal publishing practices, but it's, it's definitely it's reactive to, sure. to what um, in academia a lot of people saw as kind of predatory behavior and this kind of for-profit behavior when it comes to academic research. Let's let's start with a little parable, not or a little story. <laughs> so let's say Colin and me, you know, we've been doing a lot of fun uh, fun research into podcasting and had all these cool podcast ideas and so we applied for a grant from the government and the government gave us this grant to do a, uh, a full research study on really cool podcast topics, right. um, really impactful stuff. So we do our research study and we come up with this paper and uh, we get some, uh, some really cool, you know, we, we, get, we get accepted by a journal, the, the North American Journal of Awesome Podcast Ideas. They love, they love our paper. They want us to, to publish with them. I mean, that's, that's a pretty awesome journal. So, um, so we, we give them our paper, and they publish it in their really cool journal, and it just so happens to be that uh, our university doesn't actually have a subscription to that journal. So mm-hmm. when we go to access our, our article in, in this journal, we can't get to it. We're greeted by a paywall. <laughs> right. We have to pay the journal to get access to our own research that was government-funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the general problem um, in the industry. And basically, a lot of these uh, journal publishers, uh, they are for-profit institutions with massive profit margins. Uh, like <laughs> I'm talking 20, profit 30% profit margins uh, yeah. for a lot of them. We're More not gonna... than some of the biggest like tech companies in the world. Yeah. And every single year, I mean, they got a nice grift going because every year the uh, the prices rise mm-hmm. five to 10% or three to 7% or, you know, it's just, it's without fail almost every year you're paying more than you did right. the year before. I and know. the reason why the profit margins are so high is because they're not paying people for submissions and they're not paying peers to peer review those submissions. It's all essentially kind of volunteer work. Yeah, yeah. They're basically the the costs used to be mostly associated with the actual printing and shipping of like bound journals and bound right. periodicals. Right. That's obviously not as much of a thing as it used to be because everything's being published electronically. Mm-hmm. And so as the costs for the print materials have gone down, the 
cost for the digital materials have gone up. Gone up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not on their end because they're <laughs> right. They're... They don't have to publish. Uh, they don't have to print uh, a thousand different copies of something and send it to every library in uh, a state. Instead, um, they can, you know, have their little website portal, make it available mm-hmm. on EBSCO. You know, it's it's a whole lot of... Um, it, it, the process is definitely streamlined, but the costs have not gone down at all. And if anything, they've gone up because yep. having access to something electronically in general is more expensive than having it, it um, in print because of the fact that when you have something electronically, it could be viewed by, you know, you can have an unlimited user license where Mm -hmm. as previously when everything was print, you'd have to literally go to the library, pull the one copy of that journal off the shelf and look up your, your article in the book. Right. Um, So it'd be like, you have one copy of it. Now it's unlimited. So they increase the costs relative to what the print version was. At least we hope that's what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's theoretical, th- theoretically. <laughs> I, I think most of these companies have kind of like non-disclosure agreements when you sign, or when you sign up with them to get access to their content, meaning that you can't tell other institutions how much you're paying for your subscription, and they can't tell you how much they're paying for their subscription. Yeah, so it could be that the next state over, the University of whatever, um, has a much better deal going on, but they're not allowed to tell us, so we're not allowed to negotiate down to that. (laughs) We can't use it as a bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. So the reason this is such a big issue right now is because, well, these costs keep going up, as we mentioned, and they're turning into a huge chunk of a library's budget. Uh, The issue also being that library's budgets have been getting cut year after year in a lot of institutions. So it's really squeezing the amount of content that uh, an institution can subscribe to and have make available to their uh, to their community and their academics. Right. In addition to which, just as a brief aside from like the public point of view, you know a lot of these research uh, papers are being written with the help of grants that may be coming out of uh, public money, which means that in a sense the public is paying for this research and then not being able to access it access it without paying even more or going to an institution that's already paying for access to it. Yeah, I'm sure there's so many papers that uh, get almost paywalled out of existence because <laughs> like, no one will ever find out the actual research because it's not publicly available, even if the government funded right. that research itself. I mean, there are exceptions here and there. I think the uh, NIH, the National Institute of Health, uh, requires that all NIH-funded papers, even if they go to for-profit publishers, uh, need to be made available within 12 months of publication. Yeah, and this is, this is an issue. I mean, it seems like uh, if, uh, if a university's budget gets cut and the library's budget gets hit, the first thing that will generally go will be some subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times a university's kind of clout is almost measured by their collections and what they have access to for researchers. So once you start cutting the research that the university has access to, it's kind of a ripple effect and can really harm the institution as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have a big institution and suddenly you can't afford one of the biggest medical journals, how are you going to be able to recruit medical students to come to that school? Right. Like it's, so it it has broader impacts outside of the library. Um, Obviously, like collections that's, if that's the the thing that's growing most cost-wise, it might be the first thing that gets cut. 
um, for certain collections. But as that gets squeezed, I mean, it, it hurts everything. The open access movement, it, it's, it started really probably about 20 years ago or in the early, early 2000s. I think Jeez, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Almost 20 years ago. I mean, the idea was there <laughs> kind of beforehand, but I think right. in, in 2002, there was a big position paper that came out by, uh, well, a, a position paper called The Case for Institutional Repositories. And the whole point of it was explaining why it's important for universities to start publishing their own research. So basically, mm-hmm. why a university should set up a repository of its own research rather than just giving it away to all these different publishers. Right. They can have it, have it available, have it freely available to everybody, mm-hmm. um, not just the people at the institution. And this is what open access is at its core, is making that research freely available to everybody. No need for paywalls. Yeah, no need for paywalls. Um, and over the last 20 years, it's uh, it's grown quite a bit. So institutional repositories are, are one big way um, that that is uh, that has been happening. Basically, the university sets up its own, you know, either like a digital archive, some place where they can publish their research, keep it forever. They can mm-hmm. publish, basically publish what um, their professors and faculty uh, come up with, but also publish like their students dissertations and theses and kind of collect basically the whole full academic output of an institution. Or if they don't have the infrastructure to support a collection like that, there are open access publishers they can turn to as well, Yeah, which we'll get to a bit later probably. Yeah, yeah. So open access journals are are, um, big right now, and there are definitely pros and cons to those as well, (laughs) and we will dive into that. (laughs) So one one interesting... uh, fact about how open access has grown just even in the last decade. I I know it's, as larger institutions started getting on board with it. There's been some really big ones recently. Yeah, and and we will definitely dive into that. Um, But the European Union as a whole, um, like signed on to what they call Horizon 2020. And it's uh, this EU research and innovation program. Um, I believe it started in about 2014. And like, they basically have been shooting for by 2020. They want um, all of like the collected European Union uh, like research being published open access uh, as a huge part of this Horizon 2020. Basically, the whole thought about the open access movement is that more institutions adopt an open access policy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to put more pressure on the publishers to lower the cost of their journals, but also they may be be able to get away from the publishers altogether. If every single institution controls its own research output, does its own peer review, publishes it openly, the less is going to be needed to be published in this very expensive journal over here, and it lowers the worth of that journal. When all the research is open, it's like democratized, basically. Exactly. So what are universities doing about with open access? Or what are they... How are they... um, jumping on this bandwagon uh, and I think one of the one of the big things that has been coming up is boycotting certain publishers mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that uh, like it, that's a it's a big deal um, we mentioned the University of California well what uh, what they recently did was cancel all of their uh, publishing agreements and basically 
with uh, the Elsevier publisher, yes. which is one of the largest publishers of medical and scientific information. <laughs> and we talked about uh, profit margins before. Yeah. Uh, Elsevier has something like a 30% profit margin. I've read even as high as 40%. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they're, they're just making money selling this <laughs> stuff to institutions. Making money w- with other people's effort, essentially. Yeah. So the University of California cut off its agreement with uh, Elsevier. They had been in negotiations with them for, I feel like, probably over a year or two Mm -hmm. um, about trying to move forward because the University of California adopted an open access policy and they wanted basically rights to everything. I mean, they wanted open access rights to everything that they published on Elsevier while also getting access to Elsevier's journals. And they were trying to negotiate a new type of subscription with them that uh, those negotiations broke down and University of California just decided, I'm not dealing with this anymore. Right. <laughs> and they walked away, which is massive. Yes. I, mean, I feel like, uh, I think I read that University of California, um, the University of California system publishes about 10% of all academic research in the United States. Oh, jeez. They're one of the largest state college systems. So that's suddenly a huge number of um, researchers that won't be submitting to Elsevier. Right. <laughs> so there, that hurts, there goes that 40% profit margin. Yeah, that hurts Elsevier's uh, ability to sell its collections on the amount and quality of it. So boycotting publishers, uh, canceling agreements, kind of putting a lot of pressure on publishers. I mentioned starting institutional repositories, um, and along with that, adopting open access policies. And not just, you know, an open access policy is often not just like a statement saying that we support open access and we're going to do everything we can to make our our stuff open access. A lot of times it comes with an actual open access mandate Mm -hmm. where it forces the faculty to publish open access. Or at least encourages yeah, them Yeah, encourages to. them. I mean, a lot of them have the ability to opt out. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, of course, the reason why yeah. someone might still want to go with one of the big publishers is because there's a certain amount of prestige attached to that. So. And, yeah, and, you know, with academic research, and mm. that's a big deal. I mean, people Definitely. like to, to make their resume look really nice or yeah. their, their curriculum vitae well, look really nice when it comes to getting published in Nature or, like, one of those massive right. and well-known journals. Obviously, then your readership has the potential to be larger as well if it's with one of those really well-known journals that has so many subscribers to it. So. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're, the open access mandates aren't generally harsh mandates. They're, sure. <laughs> they're Suggestions. Yeah, they're, they're, opt, they're either opt-in or opt-out a lot of the time. It mm-hmm. depends on what the university... Uh, how the university wants to do it, but uh, an opt-out means that everything that's published will automatically be open access if the author does nothing. Like, right. basically, the author can just, yeah, uh, um, they can publish it open access. Um, it will automatically become open access, but they can opt out of it if they want. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite is the opt-in mandate where they can do whatever they want, but it's strongly encouraged that they submit their um, their paper to the institutional repository for publishing it open access. Right. I, I think there's there's good in both ways. I mean, I think that the mandate clearly more strongly encourages uh, participation, um, but there's something to be said about academic freedom, and if the author or the, the researcher wants to go a certain way, you have to be able to let them do that. Mm-hmm. 
So those are kind of some tactics universities are doing. And I, I should also mention that Elsevier, um, University of California, is not the only uh, institution that has cut off um, their I'm Elsevier sure. subscriptions. I feel like there's been a lot of movement on this recently uh, with various universities either yeah. moving away from uh, subscriptions like Elsevier or beginning to draft open access policies for internal use. Yeah, yeah. I have a uh, the growth of uh, open access policies. There is this website called oh. the Registry of Open Access Repository Mandates and Policies. It's oh, nice. a very, <laughs> it's a wordy title, um, but it's Roar Map. <laughs> that's that's what it is, um, and they've been kind of mapping um, both the Horizon 2020 open access uh, policies, but actually the effective growth and forecast of open access policies since 2002, which is really when that initial um, that paper came uh, yeah out. that paper came out talking yeah. about uh, institutional repositories. Yeah, we'll we'll link to the website and you can play with it. Hopefully, it'll work better. <laughs> it's not loading properly on my uh, on my tablet, but yeah. So yeah, I, I think uh, Germany, the entire country of Germany, canceled their Elsevier subscriptions uh, in 2016, and in 2018, Sweden and Hungary, mm. both the entire country system, wow. like their co- university systems, canceled their Elsevier subscriptions. This year, actually, just last week, um, France just renewed its Elsevier subscription. Yes. So they're not uh, quite following the trend line, but it sounded like they maybe got a pretty good deal, or maybe Elsevier is starting to buckle. <laughs> <laughs> starting to get a little stressed out. Yeah. Uh, well, and a, a couple of big U.S. universities, they haven't moved away from Elsevier or anything yet, to my understanding, but they are actively exploring open access, are MIT and Carnegie have both released statements recently. In fact, I think Carnegie's was just today about getting, about working basically on getting like these open access mandates pulled together and figuring out who they're going to partner with to make it happen. So it's, okay. I, think, I, think, I think it's really taken off in Europe and is, is usually the case. Things usually take off in Europe and then it takes us here in the U.S. a few years to get caught up. <laughs> but um, I know Harvard was one of the first, uh, one of the early adopters mm. of an open access policy and mandate for their faculty. Granted, I'm sure it's it's one of those mandates that they can opt out of. Oh, but sure. They, yeah. The uh, Harvard style open access policy is is a thing. Like it's named after Harvard. Right. <laughs> We've kind of talked about some of the good things that can come with an open access policy, namely, it puts pressure on the publishers to lower their prices, but mm-hmm. also it kind of democratizes the information and makes it freely available to everybody. Right. Um, what are some of the cons? What's uh, what's something bad uh, that can come out um, due to the open access movement? The most significant one is that uh, open access publishers may be a little lacking in the quality control department, <laughs> in addition to which they may be a little greedy and potentially even predatory, because if you're talking about a publisher, a publisher still needs to make money somehow. So what some open access publishers are doing is instead of you know, requesting money or asking money from the people who would normally be paying to view their content, they are instead uh, getting the authors or the institutions supporting the authors to pay money in order for them to include their research within their publication. Yeah. And that's something that, like, historically has always kind of raised a red flag in my mm-hmm. head, but I just think of self-publishing in general. It feels like if you're paying for your item to be published, like, shouldn't you be getting paid for that? But 
that's uh, when it comes to open access, in order to support the continued publication of an open access journal, mm -hmm. they're not making money by selling <laughs> right. subscriptions. They're making money by you pay to publish in it. Which then has kind yeah. of a domino effect. So, for example, you know, if you're talking about a, a university that's already strapped for cash, potentially, then they have to make hard choices like, okay, well, are we going to publish or are we going to you know, have a few more classes in this field or hire some more people or do some more research, whatever the case may be. Uh, you're talking about losing or having to put some of your budget, even if you have like a grant, putting some of your grant's budget towards publishing, uh, whereas before that's not something that you necessarily had to do. Yeah, it definitely favors larger universities over, yes. over smaller Smaller universities. They can kind of... Or universities in poorer countries. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, developing countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's where something like an institutional repository may make more sense than publishing in an open access yes. journal. But at the same time, there's that quality control um, issue because in an institutional repository, I mean, a lot of the things may be peer reviewed, but it'd mm -hmm. probably be peer reviewed by people at the institution or right. there, there may not be a large network of peer review that goes with it. Um, if you're saying you're publishing everything that the university is, you know, putting out there, mm -hmm. <laughs> it might be filled with, you know, some dissertations and theses that maybe were good enough for the student to graduate or earn their degree, but sure. <laughs> maybe they weren't good enough to actually get published in a reputable, right, more reputable but, uh, journal. Yeah, talking about reputable journals, um, part of the problem that open access journals have is that some of them take a very lacking approach towards publishing, where they don't, you know, they don't double check to make sure that the person submitting the paper is even a real person, they may not double check that the research is valid. They may not offer any peer review services. They may not edit it at all. <laughs> they might just take it and slap it up on their website and call it good. And it might be completely garbage. And at a certain point, that almost sounds you know like vanity publishing to an extreme, except in a way that may hurt overall academic research. Right. Uh, well, and they might even be, I mean, they might take like a, a worthwhile paper and publish it but they might still be overcharging massively for it. Uh, I've seen numbers of up to like $6,000 to get your paper accepted by an open access publisher. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how much a, like a, a degree costs, probably on average, but $6,000 is a good chunk of a, uh, of a degree right yeah, there. Yeah, and if so. you were, uh, yeah graduating and you know that was your phd thesis just think of that charge on top of oh yeah yeah all of your uh, tuition if your university can't yeah. cover all of it or you can't get a grant to help you cover it that's something that you are actually paying for yourself mm -hmm. people that are getting published through some of these open access journals are actually needing to pay out of pocket in order to get their work published i mean that's also how how things like some of these journals, they, you know, like you said, they may be kind of lax with their peer review or their standards, editorial mm -hmm. standards. So that's how kind of some of these forever controversies and the zeitgeist uh, continue. And once you have a journal that's willing to accept anything, you're yep. going to have articles about how vaccines cause autism that right. have no scientific basis to them. As that's just a or an example, or you know, global warming or climate change. Sure. Like, or, when, as has happened already, you might have uh, papers being submitted by uh, computers <laughs> <laughs> or being submitted by 
fake people who are just kind of a conglomerate of people who got together to write a paper and then get it submitted um, under a false identity. (laughs) Uh, These sorts of things have actually been going on. Or on the opposite side, you have the journals that are just predatory, that they're a complete scam. They... (laughs) They're out there in order to give like struggling academics an outlet to publish for a price. And right. Yeah. They're they're not. They don't actually care about what they publish. Um, they don't actually care at all. They just want the money. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They take the money. They might put it up, and then they leave. <laughs> so, another issue too is uh, with open access. You know, some of these journals they might come and go, and maybe they'll you know, can't continue to operate, suddenly everything that it had published disappears off the internet. It's kind of right. an issue, too. So the, the nice thing about open access is being able to, you know, still have the rights to it uh, when you publish. Yeah. That is that is definitely a That's something a we haven't pro. talked about yet. Yeah. yeah. So when you publish in an o- o- uh, open access journal, you retain the copyright yes, to it. Yes, which is a big deal. So you can republish it. You can put it in your institutional repository without fear of... A vendor, it. yeah, without yeah. fear of a vendor, you know, cutting it off or pulling it out, even if the the journal, you know, doesn't survive or if uh, it disappears off the face of the internet, right? You can put it, put your paper back out there. You yeah. can republish it, or either with a different publisher or via, you know, your institutional uh, repository if they have one. Maybe even on your own personal blog if you have one. So there has been some some controversies um, regarding. I know that a couple years ago, there was a librarian at the University of Colorado yes. um, that started a blacklist that um, of, of open access journals that he thought were predatory. Mm-hmm. And it was very popular for a while, but I, I will say I've, I know some librarians that work in open access uh, at some other universities, and they're highly critical of this blacklist. Right. Um, so the blacklist itself being a tool to help differentiate a predatory journal um, open access journal from a good one Mm -hmm. a a nice like a marker of quality is itself controversial Uh, and i think part of the reason for that is maybe there wasn't clear criteria or clear descriptions about how something ended up on the blacklist but also in a lot of libraries there's just kind of a it's it's a debate over intellectual freedom in general like how are like we, why are we even trying to decide the quality of something? We should just be providing access to it one way or the other, and the, and the user sure. gets to judge the quality. Like it's not it's not our job. We're here to provide access. We're not here to, you know, say something is good or bad. That is a point that yeah. or a, a stance rather that some people do take. Yes, and that's something I, I struggle with because I yep. I in general feel like there with with the internet. Uh, there needs to be some sort of gatekeeping because mm-hmm. there's too much bad and terrible information out there. Yeah, there's kind of an interesting gray area there where things are no longer either white or black. Um, I think he, I might be mistaking him for someone else, but I think he also maintained a whitelist, this librarian. What mm-hmm. would have been interesting to see is someone with a gray list. <laughs> so I know that he ended up uh, taking his list down. Yes. Um, due to well pressure from other librarians that work in open access mm-hmm. as well as journals as well as his own university yeah um, I, it sounded like may have been part of the issue although we should point out that his own university is denied putting any kind of pressure on him. yeah so, so i wonder if he still works there yeah i'm not, I'm not I'm sure not too sure. Not sure but yeah i think it was just in the last year that his list was was taken down so some of this is pretty pretty new pretty recent 
but I know that it had been a tool that was used by a lot of libraries and mm-hmm. at least as a starting point. by a lot of libraries because yeah. as someone that we're been we've been looking at turning on like making open access um, journals be more available. Um, at one point, I had uh, turned them turned some of them off because we were getting a lot of bad links, so people would find an open access journal in our discovery search service and I'm getting into library jargon and all that and they'd click the link and it would go nowhere because the site didn't exist anymore right um, so at one point I had kind of turned some of them off in order for quality control in order to make sure that people aren't hitting dead ends yeah. with their uh, with their searching um, but I've been slowly well not slowly I, I turned them back on and we're looking at expanding um, open access and I've been talking to our vendor to make sure that you know, try to get those dead ends worked out so that uh, it's something I've been dealing with. Like, how uh, how do you decide what's worth to go in the collection? Like, I know that when it comes to curating a collection, we, mm-hmm. you can't throw everything in. Um, right. You want to make sure that stuff is relevant and quality, but at the same time, does that matter? Maybe people want to, I don't know, you can tell this is something I, I struggle <laughs> with. <laughs> Uh, there is a new service since um, that particular librarian took down his blacklist. It's called Cabell's Blacklist. Mm-hmm. It is a paid blacklist service, yes. um, and they ha- also have a whitelist. But it's interesting because they have a whole list of uh, criteria listed on their website about what, why. They, they, they clearly spell out, and this is the nice thing that I think was different from that librarian's blacklist, Right. Uh, is that they spell out everything about how it got on the list and they're very plain uh, about it. I don't know if this is a good service to to subscribe to or not, but they uh, have criteria and they uh, list it in different cases of severity. So, mm-hmm. so there are some gray areas in here. Like on the low end, if something's on the list for, you know, minor, they, they might not actually be blacklisted, but uh, basically things like, the journal or publisher hides or obscures information regarding associated publishing imprints or parent companies. So the journal's owned by a bigger company and they kind of hide that they're sure. part of that company. Like that's a minor infraction. Maybe there's poor grammar on the website or uh, there's no phone number to contact the journal, just a web form, that kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. so those are kind of, those are the minor things all the way to um, the extreme uh, or severe Things like a hijack journal, which is a fraudulent website created to look like a legitimate academic journal um, for the purpose of offering academics the opportunity to rapidly publish their research for a fee. So a clearly predatory journal that's possibly not a real journal at all, or maybe used to be a real journal, Mm -hmm. had gone under and someone hijacked that title in order to continue publishing to make money off people. It's... It's kind of an amusing list, the severe yeah. list. Things like the journal gives a fake ISSN. Uh, yeah. Editors do not actually exist or are deceased. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Falsely claims indexing in a well-known database. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or the biggest red flag, I think, is evidence data that little to no peer review is being done and the journal claims to be peer-reviewed. Yeah. So clearly it's an issue with open access journals Mm -hmm. like quality control i mean there are very high quality open access journals yes um they're very low quality ones and there are very low quality ones Mm -hmm. so that is the forever debate i suppose with with the open access movement and you know i i think that 
it's probably open access publishing in general is probably the future for academic publishing. I think that just the way it's you know caught on even in the last 18 years, 17 years, right? Uh, it's just gonna keep growing, especially with these uh, like the European Union, the Horizon 2020. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that it, it's def- definitely gonna catch on more, especially as more and more universities and more and more libraries mm-hmm. are getting squeezed by journal costs. I mean, if the journals don't start charging a little bit less, then they're going to lose a lot of their customers. And I think once the genie's out of the bottle, there's no putting it back in. If everybody, if all the major universities that output the most research in the world are all publishing open access, mm-hmm. there's no putting that back in the bottle and giving them you know, giving those publishing rights back to the big journal publishers. Right. Which could be a good thing. Yeah. Or, you know, if predatory journal journal practice keeps kind of continuing unabated, it could wind up being a bit of a bad thing, too, potentially. Mm-hmm. That's the way of the internet, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, everything is both great and awful. Uh, <laughs> there's never kind of a nice in-between with anything that goes on online. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's the democratization of information, and yep. people weaponize information or misinformation, and the same mm-hmm. thing happens in this uh, in this realm. Yep. So that's uh, that's our dive into open access. Um, hopefully, you learned something, and hopefully, we weren't too jargony and <laughs> <laughs> too library centric. But it's interesting thing to think about, yeah. especially you know some of these things that people may not realize. And we'll have a ton of links on this particular yes episode. we will yeah so, so if you want to do any follow-up reading or see that chart that we couldn't quite parse earlier you'll yeah. be able to do that yeah uh but as usual well thanks for listening yeah thank you yeah we'll catch you next time